0: We are just going to get started now with our third and final talk today um, from from Jules Evans. So this is actually Jules' fourth talk with the Weekend University, and I'm sure everybody here will agree that it's it's an honor to have him back. So Jules is a policy director at the Centre for the History of Emotions at the Queen Mary University of London and a leading researcher into ecstatic experiences. He he runs the world's largest philosophy club, the London Philosophy Club, which is over six thousand members. Jules's first book, Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, was published in 19 countries and was selected by Matthew Side as a Times Book of the Year. He's written for The Times, The Financial Times, The Guardian, Spectator and Wired, and is a BBC New Generation Thinker. You can keep up to date with Jules' work on his website, www.philosopherlife.org. So, Jules, whenever you're ready, I'm just going to turn my webcam and mic off here and we'll get started, okay?
1: Mm Mm-hmm, sure. Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, I can't see you. I'd say nice to see you, but I can't see you, but I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a nice Sunday. I am transmitting from uh, my friend's living room in Bristol. That's where I'm doing lockdown. Um, My friend has just bought a new puppy. So if you hear some howling, that's the puppy. Um, So I'm going to talk about uh, stoicism uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy and how they can both give us resilience in difficult times. Uh, Stoicism is a philosophy that's really helped me in the hardest time uh, of my life. So I think there's a lot of good wisdom we can learn um, from this philosophy. Uh, I'm I'm really hopeful that the internet, the Wi-Fi is gonna work fine and the tech's all fine. If there are any issues, Niall's gonna jump in and tell me. Um, This talk has four segments, each of about 10 minutes or so. I'm then gonna show a kind of funny little video at the end of each segment. So first of all, I'm going to give you a kind of overview of Stoicism, of this this philosophy. So um, Stoicism is an ancient Greek uh, philosophy. Uh, It first appeared in Athens around 300 BC. That was about 100 years after Socrates died. Uh, And in that period, there was basically a breakdown of order. Um, The old order of Greek city-states was falling, uh, falling apart, really, um, these Greek city states, like Athens, were being conquered by invading empires. Um, and this raised this question for, uh, for the ancient Greeks. How can individuals flourish even in emergencies, even in very chaotic situations? Now, the, the philosophies before Stoicism, like the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, for, for those two philosophers, the good life is very much connected to the good society. So, when Plato thinks about the good life, he writes the Republic. It's very much connected to the, to the good society. But after Plato and Aristotle in 300 BC, you get uh, these new philosophies emerging like Stoicism, Epicureanism, skepticism, and cynicism. They all emerged around the same time and they explored kind of the same question How can an individual flourish in chaotic times, in times of emergency? So they look at philosophy as a therapy for the self. And the aim of these four philosophies, including Stoicism, is personal flourishing. It's happiness, serenity, what they call eudaimonia, which is the Greek word for flourishing. So uh, so Stoicism subsequently subsequently became popular in ancient Rome. Uh, The most famous Stoics today are all Roman Stoics. Uh, like Epictetus, who I'll talk about uh, shortly. Seneca, he was a leading Roman politician. He was the advisor to Nero, uh, a mad emperor. So he very much practiced Stoicism in his everyday life before he was put to death. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, was also a famous Stoic. Um, He was the emperor of Rome during a time of plague, in fact. There was something called the Antonine Plague, which was a huge outbreak of smallpox uh, during his reign. And some historians believe that Marcus Aurelius was actually killed by the plague. So he very much thought about uh, how to use stoicism in times of emergency. Um, And you can sum up stoicism in a kind of three-part structure, stoic physics, stoic logic, and stoic ethics. So stoic physics Uh, is the idea that the universe is governed by a divine intelligence, which they called the Logos. Uh, It's kind of a pantheist idea. Everything is connected by this divine intelligence. And we have a spark of the Logos within us, which is our reason. Uh, Stoic logic is the idea that you can use your God-given reason to think wisely and rationally. And then Stoic ethics is the idea that Uh, you should fulfill your nature as a rational being and as a member of the Logos by behaving wisely and rationally to your fellow um, humans. And the idea is if you follow these three steps, if you practice Stoicism diligently, you'll become virtuous and emotionally invulnerable to fortune, and you'll always be happy. The Stoics say that the key to happiness is to follow your reason. So Stoicism was a big influence on Christianity. You think about the Gospel according to St. John. He says uh, Jesus was the Logos made flesh. Uh, this is a picture of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers, Seneca's there in the middle. And they were considered as kind of pre-Christian saints uh, in Christianity. Stoicism was also a big influence on the Enlightenment, on philosophers like uh, that's Immanuel Kant on the left. On the right, that's uh, Adam Smith. They were both very into Uh, Stoicism. Uh, It was also a big influence on Victorian culture, on that kind of Victorian imperial uh, ethos, the idea that the Victorian gentleman who's very Stoic, who never really shows any emotion, and because he's so self-controlled, that gives him the right to rule uh, the the rest of the world. So in some ways, that was a bit of a kind of uh, mutation or distortion of Stoicism. And out of that Victorian adoption of Stoicism. Many people have the idea today that Stoicism means repressing your emotions and having a kind of stiff upper lip, but that's not actually accurate. Stoicism does not mean simply burying or denying your emotions. In fact, the ancient Stoics were um, very emotionally intelligent. They had a very sophisticated psychology and a whole kind of toolbox of techniques for understanding and healing negative emotions. So it wasn't just about repressing your emotions at all. So there's been a big revival of Stoicism uh, in the last decade. Um, So in fact, 10 years ago today, um, there was uh, a gathering of Stoics, the first gathering of Stoics on Marcus Aurelius' birthday. So today, April the 26th is in fact uh, Marcus' birthday. Uh, and and I and, and various other Stoics had what was the first gathering of Stoics for about 2,000 years uh, in San Diego. I'm not saying it was a very big gathering. There was only about 12 of us. Uh, I remember my housemates thought I was very eccentric for having a kind of going across the Atlantic to go to a gathering of Stoics. And, and in fact, someone even baked a, a birthday cake for, for Marcus Aurelius. So that was the first kind of gathering of modern Stoics. Um, Then in 2012, there was a a seminar called Modern Stoicism, which brought together um, psychologists, classicists, and philosophers to look at how to practice Stoicism uh, today. And out of that grew things like Stoicon, which now happens every year. That's a kind of annual Stoic gathering. uh, And also something called Live Like a Stoic for a Week. Um, and th- by the by, there's a, there's a course, uh, a free course in, in, uh, on May the 10th out of modern Stoicism uh, to how to practice Stoicism today. Um, and there's been a big revival of Stoic books as well. Things like The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, How to be a Stoic by Massimo Pigliucci. Uh, Alan de Botton writes about Stoicism. Darren Brown is one of several celebrity Stoics. Mark Manson's book has influenced by a lot of Stoicism, uh, my own book, and, the, and there are lots of others. So Stoicism has really entered the cultural mainstream in the last decade. And, and I've noticed in the last month, um, a lot of people turning to Stoicism for help during the pandemic. I remember just before the lockdown, I was sitting on a tube and I was opposite someone reading Marcus Aurelius's meditations with a look of deep concentration on his face And a lot of journalists have also talked about how stoicism can help us at the moment. So um, this was an article in the New Statesman. um, Stoicism can help us meet the pandemic with dispassionate resilience. Uh, And this was an article in The Times uh, a couple of days ago, Stuck at Home, Stoic Britons Get Philosophical. It says uh, the Roman philosophy of stoicism has become a publishing phenomenon Seneca's sales are up 747%. Marcus Aurelius is up 356%. So the Stoics are having a a good pandemic, apparently. So uh, the main point I want to impress on you just for this first segment is that ancient philosophy, including Stoicism, was not just a theory. It was a practical way of life. It wasn't just about thinking. It was about what you do in your everyday life. So we're going to do this crash course in Stoicism and we're going to look at uh, three basic ideas. The first idea is that um, our thoughts cause us joy and suffering. The second basic idea is um, the wisdom of focusing on what you can control and accepting what you don't. The third idea is the wisdom of getting into routines uh, and daily habits to strengthen uh, good habits and weaken bad habits. Uh, And then we're going to look at just some possible criticisms of Stoicism. So I don't think any philosophy is perfect, including Stoicism. I think there's a lot of good stuff there, but I think it gets some things wrong. So we'll have a think about that and come back to that at the end. So the first idea is that our thoughts cause us uh, joy and suffering. So I got into stoicism in my early 20s. Um, when I was a teenager, I was a, uh, a, a, a raver, um, my friends and I, in the kind of mid-90s. Um, and to cut a long story short, we, um, we, we flung ourselves into you know, recreational drug taking uh, and we all paid a cost. So I developed uh, post-traumatic stress and social anxiety um, from a couple of uh, bad trips I had on LSD. And all through university and in my early 20s, I was desperately trying to heal myself uh, and trying to find out how to overcome the kind of panic attacks and depression and anxiety that was really making my life um, a misery. And I didn't know what to do. Um, I went, my parents sent me to the priory. Uh, The therapist there said he could cure me just by waving his fingers in front of my eyes. And um, this sounded really extraordinary after five years of PTSD to be cured by that. And unfortunately it it didn't work for me. Uh, I tried reading uh, Sigmund Freud and reading lots of his books, that didn't really work either. But then I I read on the internet that apparently social anxiety and post-traumatic stress could be healed by something called cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, And I found a support group a CBT support group for people who suffer from social anxiety. And I went along one Thursday evening and joined this group. There was no therapist there, but one person in the group had um, illegally downloaded a CBT course for social anxiety from the internet called Overcoming Social Anxiety Step-by-Step. So we followed this course and practiced the exercises and encouraged each other on. And for me, at least, it began to work. I started to understand my emotions and how to heal them and how to heal myself. Um, So I was fascinated by this therapy, which had helped me and I think has helped millions of other people as well. I wanted to find out more about it. So I went to interview um, the people who invented it. Uh, These two people on the left in the bow tie, that's someone called um, Aaron Beck. And on the right, that's someone called Albert Ellis, And these were two American psychologists who both working independently from each other invented um, cognitive behavioral therapy in the 50s and 60s. Um, Aaron Beck called it CBT. Albert Ellis called it rational emotive behavior therapy, but they were very similar. So I went to interview them separately. Um, Ellis, I actually interviewed him in 2007 in the last interview he ever gave before he died. Um, that year. I actually interviewed him. He was on his, on his uh, deathbed, really. I interviewed him in a, in a hospital in New York. And I got to thank him and Aaron Beck for this therapy, which had helped me so much. But I asked them both, where did you get the inspiration for this therapy? Where, you know, what inspired you? And they both told me that they'd been inspired by Stoic philosophy. The main inspiration for cognitive behavioral therapy was Stoic philosophy this ancient Greek philosophy from 300 BC. Uh, and in fact, they'd been particularly inspired by this quote by um, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, who I'll talk about, uh, a bit more about in, uh, shortly. And Epictetus said, people are disturbed not by, their, not by events, but by their opinion about events. That is a great little bit of wisdom, which is so helpful in all kinds of circumstances, including really difficult circumstances like now. So this inspired what Albert Ellis called the ABC theory of the emotions. A stands for an activating event, something that happens to you. That could be stubbing your toe in the morning. That could be a global pandemic. B stands for your beliefs, opinions, and values, how you interpret that event, how you view it, how you think about it. And C stands for the consequent emotion that follows your interpretation. Now, it often feels like, for example, it often feels like our emotions just happen automatically. So let's say you're going for your daily exercise uh, and you walk past your neighbor and she frowns and you immediately feel uh, an emotion. You feel uh, offended and angry. And it feels like that emotion just happened automatically in response to that stimulus. And if if anyone says, why are you so angry?, you'll say, well, it's because my neighbor frowned at me. But what Epictetus would say, what the Stoics would say, is actually uh, between A and C, between the event and the automatic emotional reaction, there is B, your beliefs. You interpreted that situation a certain way. You told yourself a certain story about it. You said perhaps something like, uh, my neighbor is frowning at me. She's judging me. Maybe she thinks I'm a, a lockdown breaker. Uh, maybe, maybe she doesn't like uh, you know, my, my hair or my clothes. How dare she? How, how rude of her? How outrageous that she should judge me like that? So it was that story, that interpretation that led to your emotion of feeling angry and offended and indignant. And you then carried that emotion with you through the rest of the day. Now, when you understand the role of B, your beliefs, your story, your value, your prism, then you can hold it up to the light and say, well, was that view, was that interpretation, that opinion definitely true and accurate? Was it definitely wise? Was there, you know, perhaps another way of looking at that situation? Was she definitely frowning at you? Maybe your neighbor was just having a a difficult day. Lord knows there's a lot of difficult stuff going on and people are just very stressed at the moment, aren't they? It's not necessarily about you. They're just very stressed and responding to everything in a a stressed way. Or if you know that she was definitely judging you, looking down on you or, or, or in some way, do you definitely have to get offended by that? Do you definitely have to get angry You actually have a choice. Uh, As Eleanor Roosevelt uh, said, no one can offend you without your permission. You could simply shrug and go, oh, well, she's she's a bit stressed. Maybe she's she's having a difficult day. Maybe she's just a slightly difficult person. But I'm not going to take her bad mood with me through the rest of my uh, afternoon perambulation. Um, So in other words, that the role of B, because our thoughts and beliefs construct our emotions and construct our reality, We have some control over B. We have some choice over how we view the world, how we think. And that gives us some control over our emotions. This was a very interesting and somewhat revelatory idea to me when I was really at the mercy of social anxiety, because I felt so plagued by these anxious uh, or difficult emotions. So at the mercy of them. So it was a real epiphany. To think, wow, maybe my emotions are to some extent in my control because I can choose, you know, what kind of story I tell myself, what interpretation I, I make of things. So this is the idea at the heart of Stoic therapy. We can change how we feel by changing how we think. That, that kind of Stoic wisdom, you, 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 you come across it in many different places. So Ham, uh, Shakespeare was, was a big fan of Stoicism and Hamlet in particular is quite a Stoic uh, play. Um, Hamlet's friend Horatio is, is a Stoic. Shakespeare got into Stoicism through a French philosopher called Montaigne. So Hamlet says, there's naught but thinking makes it so. It's the same kind of idea as Epictetus's, it's not events but our opinion about events that cause us suffering. Likewise, John Milton, the poet said, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. You think about how the same event The same misfortune can happen to two people and they have completely different reactions. Why? Because they have a different interpretation. They tell themselves a different story about it. So we can learn to do that too. Now, unfortunately, it gets a bit more complicated than that because often our beliefs, our opinions, our story tends to be habitual, unconscious and automatic. We tell ourselves a certain story, so often it becomes very ingrained. It's like a pair of glasses through which we've seen the world for so long that we forget we're seeing the world through that uh, prism. We don't really notice it. There's an idea in uh, CBT called self-talk. Self-talk is a kind of running commentary going through our head all through the day, this looks good. This is bad. He looks scary. She looks annoying. That looks delicious. Constant snap judgments that we're making uh, uh, all through the day. Uh, and we, we don't really notice this automatic running commentary. It's rather subliminal, which means just below our consciousness. And we often don't question it. We, we just assume it's true. We assume our inner self-talk is a very reliable, picture of reality, a bit like an inner Reuters. You know, Reuters is a news agency, which is on the whole taken to be quite reliable. When in fact, according to CBT and according to a similar school called behavioral economics, our inner self-talk is more like an inner Fox News. Now, if you're a fan of Fox News, you can replace that with your own uh, media, detested media agency of, of your choice. What I mean by that is our inner self-talk, our automatic mind, tends to like not really uh, test its facts, tends to jump to conclusions, to be a bit biased, to be a bit prejudiced, a bit emotional in its reasoning. Imagine if you had an inner Fox News uh, in your ear, giving you a constant running commentary all through the day and even at night in your dreams as well. By the end of one day, you'd be quite emotionally disturbed. But that's what happens with us, with our own inner self-talk. And and we don't notice it. We just accept that it's true. So Eckhart Tolle, a great uh, contemporary spiritual teacher, said most people completely identify with their thought stream. They think they are thinking their thoughts when really their thoughts are just automatically occurring. So there's just this kind of mad babble of thoughts running through our heads, which we just believe. Every single thought that arises, we believe it. It's like the longest running shaggy dog story in existence. And we constantly follow uh, our thoughts without ever really questioning it. You could say we're in a kind of trance. We're sleepwalking, just following this trance of thoughts endless fantasies and obsessions and ruminations and resentments and we're totally wrapped up in this trance and to think that it's totally true this is kind of like a a real version of the truman show you could say or the matrix Uh, and the matrix is actually constructed by our own automatic unexamined thoughts and beliefs Um, In behavioural economics, they talk about a theory called the dual processor theory of the mind. This is if you've read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. He's a famous behavioural economist. and Kahneman says that we have two systems in our brain. We have a slow system, which is deliberative and rational. That evolved quite recently, and it's focused on our kind of prefrontal cortex. Then we have a more automatic system, uh, which evolved earlier, to keep us alive in uh, the savannah or the jungle. And it's, it's more of a kind of ape system. Uh, and the ape system is, because it's evolved to keep us alive, it runs much quicker and uses much energy, but it's much less rational and deliberative. It's much more going on gut feelings, jumping to rapid judgments like fight or flight. Now, according to behavioral economics, We only use our Socratic prefrontal cortex, our philosophical mind, about 5% of the time because it takes a lot of energy to actually reflect and think. So 95% of the time, we're just using our monkey mind. We're on autopilot and that can cause us problems. That can cause us suffering because our automatic monkey mind often jumps to conclusions which are wrong and that can cause us problems. So in CBT, they talk about cognitive biases. These are habitual ways our mind can jump to conclusions about reality, which are mistaken, uh, and can cause us things like depression and anxiety. So one, for example, is called catastrophizing, which is jumping to the worst possible conclusion. Uh, I'm doing a talk and I see someone yawn, and I think this is the most boring talk. Uh, I should should just chuck it all in uh, and, and do something else. Or uh, because there's a pandemic, we think this is the end of civilization, uh, this is the end of the world. Um, so we, we take uh, the, the kind of bad uh, bit of evidence and we turn it into a very awful story about reality. Another bias is called the fortune teller's error. Because it's bad now it's always going to be this bad. It's never going to get better. Because I'm single now, I'm always going to be single. Because I'm unemployed now, I'm always going to be unemployed. So again, we take a little bit of evidence and turn it into a big general story, which we very firmly believe, even though it causes us suffering. Another is called the mind reader's error. Because uh, jumping to conclusions about what someone else is thinking, because Uh, Your girlfriend hasn't replied to your text uh, within uh, a few hours. She's going to dump you. It's the end of it all. She's definitely having an affair. So again, a a very general story based on not much evidence. Another is called rating uh, yourself against others, assuming their life is perfect and yours is woeful. Because judging by social media, everyone's just having a, a wonderful lockdown. They're really flourishing. Their sourdough is perfect. Uh, their children are perfectly homeschooled, and it's only you that's struggling. Well, that's probably not true. Probably everyone is is really finding it uh, difficult. But if you're if you're um, subject to this bias, everyone else's life looks great, and your life looks really. Uh, it's only you that's really messing up. Another one is called personalizing. Everything went wrong because of you. Uh, negative confirmation bias, that's when you have a, negative, a very negative story about yourself or about reality. And you only pick up on the evidence that fits that story. If ever, for example, you get positive feedback from your boss, you discount it. You think, oh, they're just being nice to me. It's funny that we can be very attached to negative stories about ourselves and about the world. Uh, and we defend them. It's like we kind of hug onto them because at least they're familiar. So we can become very attached to, um, to our suffering. Uh, and another bias is called must That's what Albert Ellis came up with that word, is when we have uh, lots of thoughts like, I must always be in control. I must always be in, uh, successful. Everything I do must be perfect. Uh, my children must be perfectly brought up. Uh, you all must uh, like me and appreciate me. These kinds of thinking, they're very inflexible, and kind of rigid and not very adaptive. So it becomes harder to adapt to change, including uh, extreme change like we're in now, if your thinking is rigid and inflexible. The more your thinking is flexible and open, the easier you can adapt to to dramatic changes in your life. Um, Another bias is called labeling. So let's say you do one thing badly, like uh, you mess up a date, you mess up a, a presentation or something like that. And rather than say, oh, well, I failed that time, you turn it into an essential story about who you essentially are. I am essentially bad at uh, dating. I am essentially bad at public speaking. Again, you turn it into a very general, total story. And of course, those are negative biases, but you can have over-optimistic biases as well. There's one called um, the expert bias, for example where you over-assess your expertise about a particular topic, and that can get you into trouble or um, other people into trouble as well, like Donald Trump saying we should all uh, inject bleach to overcome uh, COVID. So there are positive biases which can also get you into trouble. So what can happen is we can get imprisoned by our own beliefs, where our beliefs box us in like a prison cage. Uh, and that can um, cause us a lot of uh, suffering. We can weave a cocoon of very negative uh, beliefs, which we really defend. But then we can have these epiphanies where we can realize I'm doing this to myself. My own thoughts are beating me up. It's not reality that's causing me to suffer. It's me. I am my own torturer. I am my own imprisoner. And I have the choice and the power to stop beating myself up in this way. When I do philosophy courses, I'll often have people on the courses who are so kind and considerate to other people. But when it comes to their own self-talk, they don't notice how, how mean they're being to themselves, how brutal. They would never accept that kind of talk to someone else, but to themselves, they can be really brutal and vicious. So we can learn, I'm doing this to myself and stop doing this how do we do that? Well, you can use what's called um, the Socratic method. So Socrates was the father of Greek philosophy, and he used to walk around Athens uh, and he would stop people, his fellow Athenians, and engage them in conversation. He would say, "Um, what are you doing with the day? What's important to you? Where are you running off to? um, What do you value? What matters to you in life? And they would say, Socrates, back off. You're not uh, you're not allowed to be two meters close to me. Um, but, and they would, they, would, they got very annoyed with Socrates. He was considered a gadfly because he would make them think for themselves. Socrates said that people sleepwalk through life. They never really examine their own values. If you were uh, in, a, in a pub on a Friday night, do you remember pubs? Uh, and you came across a, a pill on the floor. You wouldn't pick up that pill and just swallow it unless you are having a very boring uh, weekend. But when it comes to our own beliefs, opinions and values, that's often what we do. We pick them up from our friends, from our family, from the internet, uh, from our culture, and we swallow them without reading the label, without examining them. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. It was this amazing moment in human evolution where he said, don't just accept the values of your tribe, think for yourself. And of course, this was an outrageous idea. So he was put to death by his fellow Athenians. But we can still practice the Socratic method today. We can learn to ask ourselves questions rather than automatically accepting our unexamined beliefs and opinions. So we can, if you go to uh, CBT, They will play Socrates. They use what they call the Socratic method. So you might go to a cognitive therapist and say, I'm really depressed. And they would try to find the belief underlying that emotion and examine it to see if it's true. So what belief or opinion underlines this emotional reaction? And then you might say, well, it's because everyone at work hates me. That's the belief underlying your emotion. And then the therapist might say, is that definitely true? Where's the evidence for it? Could you see this differently? Is there another way you could interpret this? Is it definitely a big deal? Are you making a mountain out of a molehill? What can you do about it now? And what, you mu- what must you accept for the time being? And it's useful to practice that, not just in our you know, emotional lives if we're upset, but also in terms of critical thinking online. I- I've been struck during the pandemic by how people often just share things they've come across on the Internet about COVID-19, for example, without even thinking about it, without examining the sources, without thinking, is this helpful? Is this harmful? People sharing these kinds of, um, you know, uh, quite far out conspiracy theories, 5G's causing COVID-19, or Bill Gates is only investing in a vaccine because he wants to um, kill us all. Um, So it can be useful to practice kind of Socrates' mental hygiene. Is this definitely true? Where's the evidence? Is the source reliable? Is it reported elsewhere? Should I share it? Could it be wrong and harmful? So I'm gonna show you another little video now just about how our thoughts and interpretations uh, construct uh, reality. Um, Now let's see how I do this, okay. Um, Here we go.
0: Been trying to reach out to you all day. Are we on for tonight? Jeez. What? You can't catch me. You can't catch me. I'm Lance Moore. Touchdown, bitch. What? Pause.
1: Ah, oh, shoot. Keegan's been texting me. Sorry,
0: dude. Missed your texts. I assumed we'd meet at the bar. Whatever. I don't care. Sorry, dude. Missed your texts. I assumed we'd meet at the bar. Whatever. I don't care. Whatever. I don't care. The fuck is his problem? Do you even want... To hang out. Do you even want to hang out? Oh, that's considerate. consider it. Like I said, whatever. Like I said, whatever? Fuck this guy. Jesus, you are fucking priceless. Aww. Uh-huh. You're the one who's fucking priceless? This, this motherfucker right here. Oh, he wants to. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. You want to go right now, huh? Guess I can do that. <clears throat> okay. Okay, let's go. He said, "Okay. Okay, let's go." All right. You know what? You know what? You want to really do this now, Keegan? You nut? You're not putting me out. Fuck yeah, let's do it! Oh, you fucking asshole! First round's mine. Oh, no! Oh, no! There ain't gonna be no rounds, asshole! It's gonna be a fucking street fight! This is son of a...
1: Because tonight we gonna party on the party. No! Buddy!
0: Like I said, first round's mine. A beer and a gimlet. My partner, right? What's that? Uh, I, I, I got you a baseball bat with nails in it. From my post-apocalyptic Jackie Robinson costume, how did you know?
1: Oh. Uh sorry about that. It stopped a little early. Um that was from Key and Peel. Um they're just There's so many great sketches by them, by the by. So uh, I would check them out on YouTube. Um, Yeah, Key and Peel, it's called. Jordan Peel, who wrote um, Get Out, he directed Get Out, the great uh, horror movie. Um, Okay, so uh, the second idea we're going to look at is the wisdom of focusing on what you can control and accepting what you don't. So I spoke to um, someone a couple of weeks ago, an entrepreneur who had got COVID-19 uh, and he said he never felt as uh, as ill. Uh, he, was, he really felt really bad. And he was lying in bed. And he got into all kinds of uh, catastrophizing thoughts. He thought, um, what if my business uh, goes under? What if the economy uh, collapses? What if civilization collapses? What if I die? Um, so he was really going into a spiral of, of, of these kinds of thoughts. And he picked up, uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations, this, this great little Stoic book. Uh, and it really helped him, uh, to move from a feeling of powerlessness and fear, a spiral of fear to a place of, uh, sovereignty and autonomy. He realized that in any situation, he had a choice. He could focus on feeling powerless and afraid, or he could focus on practicing wisdom. Uh, And he could do that in any situation. He could be um, the guardian of his attention, the captain of his soul. Uh, And that really helped him to get through that kind of uh, spiral. So this idea of stoic resilience was developed by a philosopher called Epictetus. He was a, a slave in the Roman Empire. His name means acquired. So, obviously, to be a slave in the Roman Empire is um, potentially a very traumatic situation. You're at the mercy of circumstances. Your owner could beat you up or kill you with legal impunity. And in fact, Epictetus's first owner was a bit of a sadist and uh, broke his leg so badly that he walked with a crutch for the rest of his life. So, potentially a very traumatic situation because in some ways you're very helpless. And yet... This slave, Epictetus, developed a philosophy of resilience, which we can still use today. And Epictetus said the secret of resilience, even in very chaotic situations, is to think about what do you control in this situation and what is out of your control. He divided all of life into two zones, Uh, like a Londoner, I call them uh, zone one and zone two. Zone two are the things in life over which we do not have complete control. What kind of things do you think we don't have complete control over? Um, Well, let's say uh, politics. We have some control, uh, but we don't have complete control over it. Um, The weather, we have uh, some control. We can try and control our emissions, for example, but to some extent it's beyond our control. Other people. Um, we can try to get other people to treat us rightly and with respect, but sometimes they don't. Um, our online reputation is to some extent beyond our control. Our body is also beyond our control. We can wash our hands, wear a face mask, uh, keep two metres apart from everyone, but we still might still uh, get this virus. Uh, we're still going to get ill uh, in our life from something or other, and we're all going to die eventually. The mortality rate for human beings is pretty steady uh, at 100%. So, all of those things are beyond our control to some extent, according to Epictetus. Um, they're all in the realm of fortune. Um, they're all um, constantly changing. There's this idea in Stoicism, a bit like in Buddhism and Taoism, that everything in the external world is always changing. There's a quote from Heraclitus, everything flows. You can never step into the same river twice. Nothing stays still, everything changes. Um, there's an idea in, in Stoicism, which was um, influenced Christianity of the wheel of fortune constantly turning round and round so things might be growing great for you today but then things might change radically tomorrow um they might get a lot worse but then they'll keep changing so eventually they'll get better as well so everything external everything in zone two is in the realm of fortune seneca said we have come into the realm of fortune and harsh and invincible is her power. Things deserved and undeserved must we suffer, just as she wills." So um, what then is in zone one, do you think? Our actions? Well, not entirely. Our actions are not entirely in our control. If you're in prison uh, or exiled, like Epictetus was, and like Stoic philosophers often were, then you can't necessarily leave your prison. So according to Epictetus, the only thing that's really in our control, if we choose to exercise our control, is our own beliefs, our own ability to choose our perspective on what happens to us in zone two. And that little sliver, that little window of autonomy actually gives us remarkable, almost godlike power to adapt to things that happen to us, even to mighty blows from fortune. Epictetus thought that uh, human suffering, a lot of human suffering, is caused by two mistakes that we make, two category errors. The first mistake is that we try to exert complete control over something in zone two. We say it must be a certain way. Uh, we must abate, uh, if you remember that phrase. We might say something like, I must always do my work perfectly perfectly. And if I don't, it's a disaster. And then suddenly we're in lockdown and we're depending on our dodgy Wi-Fi and uh, maybe I hope not touch wood, but our Zoom can play up or our children are constantly disturbing our work and we can't work at the same standard we usually do. And if you're a masturbator, if you're a perfectionist, that's going to cause you suffering because you have a rigid, inflexible idea that I must always do my job perfectly. And that's very unadaptive. It means you're not really adapting to change. Or for example, when I had social anxiety, I thought other people must like me. They must always like me. And if I don't, it's a catastrophe. That was just a a foolish way of thinking because it meant I was tying my self-esteem to the wheel of fortune, which is constantly changing, constantly going uh, round and round. I was alienating myself. The word alienation means to make it, to sell yourself into slavery. I was saying I can only accept myself if other people accept me. So I was taking my self-esteem and tying it to the fickle stock market of public opinion. If people reacted to me well, my, state, my self-esteem would soar. If people reacted to me badly, my self-esteem was, uh, would plummet. So you can see how kind of unwise that was. I was making myself... The slave of fortune. If you tie your self-esteem to something in zone two, like money or status or power, you are also making yourself the slave of fortune and you will never really be, um, you know, serene or secure. You'll just be pulled up and down by, uh, by fortune. Um, and in fact, my, my, my negative beliefs were caught, created a kind of feedback loop. I would think other people must like me. And that would make me quite defensive and wary of other people because I'd kind of made them into a god. And my defensiveness then made other people react rather negatively to me. So it became a feedback loop. So our expectations and beliefs often kind of create reality in a feedback loop. And really, it was so unwise because why bother what other people think? I mean, when you think about some of the people whose opinion you care about, Marcus Aurelius said, it never ceases to amaze me. We all love ourselves more than other people, but care more about their opinion than our own. Marcus Aurelius said, um, another quote, he said, consider what kind of characters they have, the people whose opinions matter to you. Why do you care? You know, these are, these are a bunch of... Uh, Uh, You know, madmen, he said. He said, the general public are like madmen. So why should we care what our, our, our public opinion is or put so much store on it? So the antidote for that feeling of helplessness and anxiety and insecurity is to bring our attention from zone two to zone one and to remind ourselves, what's in my control in this situation? Oh, it's my own beliefs. So for example, I can choose to accept myself even if other people don't like me. Likewise, I can choose to accept that I'm going to do the best I can under the lockdown, even though it's not going to be perfect, my work, but I can still uh, try and accept myself. That is in my control. Um, So that's the antidote for that kind of feeling of helplessness. Marcus Aurelius, it's it's his birthday today, by the way. He said, vex not yourself at the course of things. They heed not your vexation when he, he was emperor of rome the most powerful man in uh, in the world at that time but he was constantly reminding himself he wasn't a god unlike other emperors who went mad because they thought they were gods marcus would constantly remind himself of the limit of his control um and the other problem uh, so so we can bring our attention back to zone one focus our values uh, on 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 our own um beliefs our own opinions that's always in our control the ability to practice wisdom to do the right thing socrates uses the metaphor of making a pot when you're making a pot you don't put the clay on the outside of the wheel in zone two where fortune's constantly spinning round you put it on the center of the wheel in your own values that's how you take care of your soul by resting your self-esteem on your own intrinsic values, your own sense of right or wrong, no matter what the future holds, you can always meet it with your capacity for reason and wisdom. So what's the point of worrying about the future or the past? They're beyond your control. Focus on the present, focus on practicing wisdom in the here and now. And the second mistake that humans make is either they try to exert complete control over zone two Or secondly, they fail to take responsibility for zone one. They fail to take responsibility for their own beliefs and values. Instead, they use something that happens in zone two as an alibi, as an excuse. Um, Because we're in a lockdown, I have the excuse just to become, uh, to really dive into my uh, alcoholism, for example or just to just to buy a big bag of cocaine uh, and do it all well i have the excuse because we're in lockdown to beat up my wife uh, and then the person who beats up his wife says look what you made me do as if we're just at the mercy of circumstances so um, the stoics practice this kind of tough love they say look you always have responsibility you always have control over your own beliefs epictetus said the robber of your free will does not exist What happens to you isn't your fault, but how you deal with it is your responsibility. So you may have had um, a tough childhood. You may have a, 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 a really tough family. You may live in a very difficult neighborhood, but you still have a choice. You still have the power to exercise responsibility and sovereignty over zone one. So we can accept the will of the Logos in zone two. They were pantheists, remember. It's a a bit like the idea of the Tao or Christian providence. Okay, um, so the third idea is the importance of getting into routines and daily habits. Do you remember we said our attitudes, our beliefs tend to be habitual, unconscious and automatic. We're often on autopilot. Uh, Our self-talk is just a kind of autopilot, a trance of automatic beliefs. What that means is if you hear a good talk, say, or come across a good philosophy book or a good idea on the internet and have a little epiphany and think, now I know how to do uh, to navigate my way through this whole nightmare with resilience and wisdom. The problem is that little epiphany will probably only last for a few hours or a few days until you go back into autopilot and follow the old story, your old automatic philosophy of life. So if you really want to become resilient, if you really want to change yourself. You have to take your wise beliefs and turn them into automatic habits. You've got to practice them daily. Um, so the Greeks really understood that the word ethics actually comes from ethos, which means customs or habits. They understood that philosophy has to be habitual. Um, Aristotle said we are what we repeatedly do. So moral excellence is not an act, but a habit. Um, Heraclitus, who's pictured here in uh, Raphael's painting, The School of Athens, he said, habit is destiny. So if you want to know who you're going to be in five years or 10 years, look at your habits today, because those that drip by drip is going to um, make who you are in five years or 10 years Um, Epictetus said there's nothing so malleable as the psyche. Because we're made up of habits, we can really change ourselves because every habit is changeable. So that's similar to the modern idea of neuroplasticity. We can change these ingrained habits in our our brains through daily practice. So we're going to look at three ways the Stoics used to strengthen good habits uh, and weaken bad habits. One was uh, maxims. The Stoics tried to make their philosophy easy to remember. They turned them into these little kind of catchphrases uh, called maxims, which they would say to themselves over and over until they became ingrained into their self talk. They'd also write them down in little handbooks, which they called enchiridions, and they'd carry around these handbooks and give themselves daily reminders while they were out uh, about their, you know, their daily lives. Um, so the idea of the maxim is you repeat it over and over until it becomes part of your habitual self-talk. Um, so, um, for example, life itself is but what you deem it is a great little maxim from Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Um, Dale Carnegie, the father of self-help, said these are seven words that can change your life. And you see similar kind of maxims in um, other ancient schools of philosophy and religion, so, you think about Jesus' teachings, uh, like, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. What a great maxim. Uh, who knows how the lockdown's going to end? But, you know, we can't worry too much about the future right now. We kind of have to take it day by day. So, Christianity is also full of these little maxims. Uh, so is Buddhism. So is uh, Islam. Um, the, please believe these days will pass. So, this too will pass is also a great maxim. This is um, uh, some adverts that have appeared in London during this uh, crisis. That's so helpful. If ever you are having a really hard day, just remind yourself, this will actually pass. Everything will pass. The negative emotion you're feeling, that will pass. The the, the difficult thoughts you're feeling, they will pass. This pandemic will pass. So these kinds of maxims can really help us. Uh, and CBT also has these kinds of maxims. When I was doing CBT for social anxiety, we were given these maxims, which we would read out every day for about half an hour, and we'd listen to them on uh, tapes as well. Things like acceptance is an active experience, or that which you resist persists, or the world reflects our beliefs back to us. Marcus Aurelius said that our mind becomes dyed with the color of its habitual thoughts. Therefore, soak your mind in these ideas. So this idea that we, through repetition, maxims become part of our self-talk. A second way the Stoics created habits was field work. It's not enough just to be good at talking philosophy, you also need to practice it. Epictetus said, you may be very fluent at philosophy in the classroom, but when you go out into the street, you're miserably shipwrecked. So the true test of whether you're a good Stoic is how you actually practice it in real life situations when someone uh, insults you in the queue to the supermarket or uh, when your children interrupt your Zoom call, do you practice wisdom or do you automatically react uh, with a kind of negative emotion? And if you do, that's that doesn't mean you're, you know, you're a total disaster. It just means you've got to practice a bit harder uh, and get into a kind of automatic habits. So Epictetus said, if you want to make anything a habit, uh, do it. If you want to weaken the habit, uh, don't do it. Uh, So we can strengthen habits just by practice, uh, daily practice. So in CBT, they talk about behavioral exposure therapy. That's the B in CBT. When I had social anxiety, I could repeat maxims like I accept myself even if other people don't but I also had to go out and practice. I had to make myself go to parties even when I didn't want to. I had to make myself go up and start conversations when it felt really awkward. And you know, often those conversations were disastrous. They were really boring. I felt so tense, but the victory was not in the quality of the conversation initially. The victory was in standing up to my fear and doing it anyway. And gradually it got easier um, and, and the habit uh, of, of extroversion became a bit stronger. So Epictetus says, "Practice in little things and then proceed to greater." So bit by bit, you can strengthen habits. Finally, um, one of the things the Stoics did was um, to try to practice being the curator, curator of your soul, which means the kind of guardian, seeing your 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 attention as like a, a a bit like a gallery or a museum, being careful about what you put in and what you send out. During the lockdown, be careful about, are you reading nourishing things? Are you listening to nourishing things? Are you trying to um, check in with people who are who are good for your uh, mental health through, um, through Zoom, for example? And careful what you send out as well. Careful what you post online. Um, careful how you just interact with people. Can you just try to smile at someone in the street? That might be their only interaction of the entire uh, day. So um, Seneca said that we often get our habits from the people around us. He said, vices move stealthily and swiftly pass on to those nearest. Just as in a plague, we must be careful not to sit next to those that have been infected. So we must be careful in the selection of our friends. So our good habits pass on to others. They're contagious. And our bad habits also pass on to others. So we've got to be a little careful what we put out there. Okay, just very quickly, we're going to get on to questions uh, just shortly. But just to think about what possible criticisms could we make of Stoicism? I'm sure while I've been talking, you've thought of some. But for example, um, can we really control our thoughts and emotions? Um, Sometimes maybe our thoughts just happen spontaneously. And it might be that the more we struggle to control our thoughts and to to control our negative emotions as well, the more they just um, flare up. So, in fact, rather than the Socratic method of disputing negative thoughts rationally, we could practice uh, the Buddha method. So Buddhism was quite similar to stoicism; both have the cognitive theory of the emotions, both think that our emotions are connected to our thoughts and beliefs. But in Buddhism, rather than always disputing our belief like you do in, uh, with the Socratic method in stoicism, you might be um, taught to simply observe negative emotions and thoughts as they arise. So you're feeling anxiety. And rather than going, I shouldn't be feeling anxious, that's irrational. You could just say, okay, anxiety is happening. Anxious thoughts are happening. I feel anxiety in my body. And just breathe and observe it and accept it. And that acceptance might actually help you to soothe your anxiety more. So I don't know if the first talk uh, during this day on acceptance and commitment in therapy talked about that a bit, about the value, uh, the power of just kind of accepting difficult emotions when they arise and accepting we don't always have control. Our thoughts sometimes just arise spontaneously, but we can choose how much attention we give them and how much credibility we give them. So that's one kind of critique you can make of CBT and stoicism. It's not exactly a critique. It's just a kind of, for a lot of people, the Buddha method is more helpful than the Socratic method. Does acceptance of externals make us apathetic? This is often a critique you hear about stoicism. If I accept all externals, aren't I just becoming apathetic, a doormat? Um, I mean, the Stoics, their goal was actually apathia. Their goal was to become completely emotionally serene. So whatever happened in zone two, they, they weren't that bothered by it. But that didn't actually mean they were political doormats. The ancient Stoics um, had you know, strong political opinions. and They tried to stand by their, um, their opinions. They tried to stand up for what was right. So there was something under the Roman Empire called the Stoic Opposition, um, who resisted the empire and stood for freedom and tried to bring back the republic. And a lot of Stoics were imprisoned, exiled and, uh, and killed for standing up for their beliefs. So according to Stoics, you can stand up for what you think is right in the world, but you still accept the limit of your control. You don't know whether you'll succeed in zone two, but what is in your control is trying to do the right thing. Um, is Stoicism and CBT too individualistic? I think there is some uh, truth to that. It was very much kind of a philosophy for the individual to practice. Um, There were never really Stoic communities. There's no Stoic churches or rituals or places you can gather together. There are no uh, Stoic festivals. So in some senses, I think it is a bit uh, individualistic. I I was uh, very much a practicing Stoic, but after a while, I felt it lacked that kind of community that I was um, looking for, but it still is quite useful in these kinds of times. Should we try to overcome attachments um, to others, um certainly, when I had bad social anxiety, it was useful for me to practice stoicism, to overcome my anxiety uh, and my concern about the approval of other people. And so I learned to become more ind- independent. I learned to make myself what Epictetus called a bit of a kind of invulnerable fortress. So well, I don't really care, I would say to myself. They like me or not, who cares? So I was quite self-reliant. But at a certain point in my life, I realized I felt that I needed to go beyond that. I needed to learn how to be more vulnerable, how to depend more on other people. To be less of a stoic fortress and actually to kind of let my drawbridge down as it were and and allow myself to trust other people even if that meant i would sometimes get um, hurt so i think there is a risk sometimes stoicism can um you know uh, be too unattached and that sometimes maybe it's okay to have attachments even if that causes you suffering and finally Are emotions like sadness or grief really so bad? If the Stoic um, lost a loved one during the pandemic, they'd be like, well, that's the will of nature. Everybody dies. And that's just how it goes. What's the big deal? When Socrates uh, was dying, uh, everyone was surrounding him in tears and he said, what's the big deal? This is totally natural. Please stop crying so hysterically but maybe you know if we lose a, a, a loved one in you know now or whenever why why shouldn't we feel sad why shouldn't we grieve if bad things happen to us why why shouldn't we be pissed off for a while is this stoic goal of being completely um unflappable really so ideal um so i don't know i think there there can be sometimes a value in feeling the full spectrum of emotions including sometimes anger aristotle thought that there is such a thing as appropriate anger, there's appropriate grief, appropriate sadness. So I don't accept the Stoic idea we should try to transcend all uh, negative emotions. But I do still think some of these Stoic ideas and techniques are really helpful and useful. You can use them even if you're not a fully paid up, card-carrying Stoic. Um, So uh, we're going to go to questions now.
0: So we've got a question here from Tracy McEacher, and she's actually one of our members. And it's, it's basically, so much art comes from submitting or diving into negative thoughts to live fully in them and not question them. So does Stoicism have a negative effect on creativity or can it have a negative effect on creativity? Ooh,
1: good question. Um you know i suppose it could yeah um you know if you were if you were an artist wanting to kind of dive in and really kind of feel the lows um then um then yeah i suppose stoicism could limit the gamut of your of your emotions and your experiences but you know it's it's also the case that great works of art don't just take you down into the abyss they sometimes show you ways to get out of it too so you think about um say greek tragedies um they would show you the worst things that could happen but they would also sometimes show you a kind of tragic wisdom which in some ways is is often a bit like stoicism so you think about hamlet you go to the, the worst stuff that could happen the darkest stuff but it shakespeare doesn't leave you there he does show you some aspects of kind of stoic type wisdom that you can can, actually, sometimes you can only really find in, in, you know, um, disasters or Dante, he takes you down into hell, but he doesn't leave you there. He shows you, you know, some ways to get out of it too. So, um, but I can think of some wonderful artists who weren't stoic at all. So I, I, you know, I suppose, or, or I'm not necessarily trying to say to everyone, be a stoic, um, what I am saying is if you find yourself sometimes at the mercy of, of, um, you know, if you need help sometimes do think about these techniques and ideas because they, they, they do work, but you you don't have to practice them all the time. I don't practice them all the time, but, um, you know, they, they are good in an emergency.
0: Okay. Great answer, Thank you. Um, the next one is from Alexandra would you say this way of thinking works when working with clients that have suffered from extensive trauma? As usually from my experience, people tend to feel blamed within the CBT framework.
1: Okay. Um, well, it sounds like she probably has more experience than me. Um, she, she's a trauma uh, therapist. Um, I, I, I speaking from my own experience, I, I did have PTSD. Um, and i did find it helpful but i found it helpful in the certain context which was like in a self help group so i never had the experience of going to a cbt therapist and them saying to me well your your negative thoughts are irrational have you tried being more rational it was always something we were teaching ourselves and practicing ourselves so um yeah so i think you know for I I do think that acceptance and commitment therapy is quite a good complement or supplement to CBT um, because some people, they're like, yes, okay, I should try and be more rational, but I'm still feeling these feelings. Uh, I'm still thinking these thoughts. So there, I think um, acceptance can be quite helpful. Just go, okay, look, just accept what's arising. Accept the, uh, without being overwhelmed by it, without identifying with it. Um, So I have found um, Buddhism, a useful supplement to stoicism. Um, the, the, the book I say I found most helpful in the last two years, um, is a book by Pema Chodron, um, called, um, the places that scare you, which is partly about, um, when difficult emotions arrive and difficult experiences arise, um, just practice observing and accepting without being kind of knocked over by them.
0: Okay. That's a a great recommendation. And just to to build on that, uh, Sandra Thompson has asked, or she said, I'm learning to be an emotional intelligence coach. What would you recommend that I read or or watch to understand the connection or disconnection with these ideas and the ideas in emotional intelligence? Please and thank you.
1: Mm. Well, if you, I mean, look, I would say it's worth everybody reading the original Stoic books Go to the original sources. So much uh, self-help and um, psychotherapy comes from about three Stoic books. So much about I would say ninety percent of self-help and pop psychology comes from uh, comes from. Well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but a lot of it comes from the Stoics. So I would say um, read Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. It's about this big, very, not a very big book. He wrote it during a plague. Uh, and it's, um, it's very beautiful uh, and easy to read. It'll be more beautiful than, than uh, almost any psychology book you'll read, and it's very wise. Uh, I would also say read Epictetus' Discourses. Um, those two are the best, better than Seneca, in my opinion. Um, Epictetus' Discourses, it's his lectures. It's like being on the most incredible lecture course. So it's, They're all just where a student wrote down his lectures, and it's him – kind of um, having a go at the audience he was if he was on the weekend university you know he would people would say oh this is this is upsetting me at the moment and he'd kind of lay into them and say why are you being so pathetic like uh, that's an external why are you worried about external? so he's quite tough love but it's very i found that book so helpful my copy of their is just underlined and underlined um so um yeah don't be afraid of the original of the primary sources I was amazed um, how easy and accessible they were to read and in terms of stoicism's relationship to modern therapy um uh, the two i mean like donald robertson's book the philosophy of cbt is good uh my book philosophy for life that's basically kind of me interviewing people who use ancient philosophy in, in their life um there's there's quite a few books now on modern stoicism i didn't I was going to show you a video of Darren Brown talking about his love of stoicism, but I ran out of time. But his book, Happy, is quite interesting on the use of stoicism today. That's
0: great. Thanks, Jules. Um, The next question is from Claire. Claire, And she's saying that earlier in the acceptance and commitment therapy lecture, we learned that it would be more pertinent to ask of negative thoughts, not is this true, but rather, is this helpful? Could you tell us what the benefits might be of doing the former rather than the latter? Assuming CBT suggests there are, there are benefits.
1: Um, Well, I suppose that there might be times when you are misreading a situation. And so all of your emotional drama is, is unnecessary. Um, So let's say um, you, you're kind of, um, you know, you, you, you react according to a text and think that that means that your, you know, your your partner is going to dump you or something. And just think, well, is that definitely definitely the case? Is there evidence for it? Um, do I habitually jump to the wrong conclusion about the situation? So we can reality test it. And um, people with social anxiety, they often think, for example, um, if you have really bad social anxiety, it can be difficult even to kind of queue in a supermarket because you think everyone is looking at you. So you feel so self-conscious you can't do it. So a a cognitive therapist might say, well, you could reality check that. Like have a look around, Um, you know, is is anyone looking at you? Just just check for evidence. Um, Or say if you have OCD and you think, um, if I don't uh, lock and unlock the door five times, um, a relative of mine will die or the world will end. Um, a therapist might try to get you to kind of gradually check some of these catastrophizing beliefs uh, and see if that's true. So in that sense, we can sometimes kind of check some of these beliefs and, 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 and then just stop carrying them around. We, all of us lug uh, various unexamined beliefs around that, that cause us massive suffering. And um, so sometimes you can, you just, you grow out of them. You just let them go and you can stop dragging around that, that, you know, I can guarantee that i and, and and you and everyone in the audience has at least one uh unexamined belief that they totally believe uh which causes the mass amounts of suffering which isn't true um like uh you know uh, someone might think uh, i'm ugly or uh that uh, my my dad doesn't love me or something like that um and rather than you know act is great but there, there is there's also a value that you know it might not be true i mean you can you could you could um investigate, examine it. Um nonetheless, I just I do think that acts is 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 a really um brilliant um therapy. And I think why what is what is useful is you know there's a great book called The Happiness Trap um by Russ Davis. Um I think it's Russ Davis, he's a really good act therapist. He puts a lot of free materials online. And in the book The Happiness Trap, he talks about the risk of thinking I should be um, happy all the time. Uh, and if that's the case, you know, say if you're into positive psychology or into CBD or whatever, I should be happy all the time. I should be serene all the time. That's a form of masturbating, isn't it? Then if you have that rigid thinking, I should be happy all the time, every time you feel a bit of anxiety, you might avoid situations that cause your anxiety. But if you want to grow, um, that, that becomes what he calls, what's called an act, experiential avoidance. Did, did you cover that in, your, in the first thing? Experiential avoidance is basically where you avoid situations that cause you anxiety or fear and so on, and you end up living a very restricted life. So if you want to move towards your goals in life, you are going to inevitably feel anxiety sometimes. If you want to grow and learn new things, you are inevitably going to feel anxiety, fear and so on. So we should accept that. This is the value of act, Accept that sometimes you're going to feel anxiety, Accept that you're going to sometimes feel sadness. That's there shouldn't be bad indicators. They're signs that you're a human being who's growing. Mm. So in that sense, um, we should, we can, we should be careful of, of, of masturbating and saying, I must be happy all the time. or I must always be serene and unflappable. Does that yeah, make sense? Big
0: time, big time. Uh, okay. This is my own question. Um, So if you could, if you could, A, plant one, one empowering belief in the head of every single person on the planet, what would that be? And the second thing is, what is, what belief do you think would have the most potential benefit if people were to let go of and not carry around with them all the time? Like in your own life, for example, what beliefs have you let go of that have had, that have helped to remove the the greatest amount of unnecessary suffering, if that makes sense?
1: right oh that's a good question Niall. um i suppose the the, the the basic one i'd love people to learn is um uh we have power over, over our own thoughts and beliefs uh if i i don't have children but if i did i that would i would try to teach them that um like um that um our beliefs create our reality. Uh, I don't mean in a kind of law of attraction way, particularly. I mean, just that um, our reality is constructed through our thoughts and beliefs. And that usually happens unconsciously and automatically. So that idea is at the heart of most great wisdom traditions. So in the Buddha's uh, Pada, his teachings, he says, you know, um, uh, mental, me- mental and emotional states follow our thoughts um same ideas at the heart of stoicism and I, I think and and in hinduism and Taoism and so on so that idea that um you know our thoughts uh, create our reality um that that i i i love to teach people Well, we not teach but i would love, love if we all kind of covered yeah. that in schools <laughs> you know it doesn't, doesn't take long uh, i wish there was a you know a, a class of that in school uh, and the kind of negative belief um um, i suppose um you're you're only well for me personally and i can't i think it's it's, it's hard to say if, the, if, if we all mess ourselves up in different ways but the way that i mess myself up and my friends mess myself up a lot is that you're only worth your um achievements or your public rating yeah. uh, and i think that's that's that that's a form of masochism which is, is quite popular, quite spread in our culture, that you're only worth, uh, you know, uh, your achievements or, 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 or how other people assess you. Uh, and that leads to a kind of rat race type, desperate, uh, trying to prove yourself, you're worthwhile. Um, and so, yeah, the antidote for that is that, you know, it's always within your power to accept yourself and, and to practice um, compassion to yourself. Uh, and and the, the, I think hopefully the more you practice compassion to yourself, the more you're good at it for other people as well. That's a
0: great answer, Jules. Thanks very much. Um, we've got time for probably a couple more questions. The next one is from Amy and she's asking, what specific aspects of CBT have you found helpful? And are there any techniques or ideas which weren't helpful or perhaps were actually damaging for you? Um, if, they're not dam- if they weren't damaging for you, mm-hmm. then others that you've heard about.
1: And what did I find most helpful? I think it was just the basic idea, two basic ideas. Um, uh, You know, our thoughts create um, our emotions. So the cognitive theory of the emotions and the idea that I I can choose where to put my attention and where to put my values. I can choose to put it in zone one uh, in my own kind of self-acceptance rather than putting all my self-esteem on other people's judgments. Um, so that was that was helpful for me. Um, what was it? I mean, for example, there's one technique in stoicism and, and in, CBT, in some forms of CBT called defensive pessimism, where you think through all the things that could go wrong uh, in a situation and you accept them. So you think what's the worst that could happen? Uh, what's the worst that could happen during the pandemic? Uh, well, uh, obviously, the worst is that you could die or a loved one could die. Um, Now, some people might not find that helpful. I I believe that defensive pessimism works for about uh, 25% of people. But for a lot of people, it's just not. It Actually, that's a form to dwell on the worst that could happen just freaks them out. I I, I think personally, I sometimes find defensive pessimism quite helpful. So, you know, I mean, I don't know how much the other speakers have talked about kind of our attitudes to death i suppose to some extent i've accepted the possibility that i might die during this pandemic or that a loved one might and i'm still good if that did happen i would i was i would still be extremely upset by it i'd probably be destroyed by it but to some extent i've accepted the possibility that that might happen if you see what i mean so it's a bit of a convoluted answer but i think a lot of people don't find defensive pessimism helpful Um, but uh, for me, it is a bit helpful to kind of think what's the worst that could happen and to kind of look it in the face and and accept it. Um, so, I mean, the Stoics don't think that death is the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is, um, you know, you live a life without meaning or virtue, um, as a, as a, a, you know, um, without integrity, that is worse uh, it's not the length of your life that is the true measure of its success. Uh, it's it's whether you le- lived it with virtue and purpose and meaning. Um, so that's an interesting idea for these
0: times. Drop the mic there. Um, <laughs> no, these are some powerful ideas, Jules. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, the last question is really just I want to ask about your new book. We've I've just linked to it there on the chat. Um, it seems super interesting, yeah. but could you maybe tell us a bit more about what it's about and what people can expect to, to find in there? And why did you write this book?
1: Yeah. Well, so thanks, Niall. Um I, I wrote my first book about how people use ancient Greek philosophy in modern life. That was about how to use your reason, to, uh, your rationality to flourish. After that, I wrote my second book, The Art of Losing Control, about why um, ecstatic experiences or mystical self-transcendent experiences can also be important for healing and flourishing and connection. Um, I've lost now. I'm still I'm here. I'm still here. Yeah, you can still yep. hear me, guys. yeah Okay. Um, so that was about you know these kind of things. This this realm of psychology called you know ecstatic self-transcendent experiences, which I've talked about here uh, at the weekend university. Now, sometimes ecstatic or mystical experiences can be messy. Uh, They're not always, you know, euphoric and joyful. Ecstatic experience are moments where you go beyond your ordinary sense of self uh, and feel, you know, deeply connected to something bigger than you. That can be terrifying. Uh, And um, so this new book is about what's called spiritual emergencies. Those are moments of kind of uh, spiritual experiences which are quite messy and involve alterations in your sense of self and reality for extended periods of time let's say, for weeks or months or even years. Um, There's not much material out there for people who have those kinds of experiences, but they're quite common. As more and more people take psychedelics, for example, or go to meditation retreats or this kind of thing, people are going to have these kinds of spiritual epiphanies, but they're scary. Uh, And they go beyond their ordinary self, but they're not always sure how to come back to this ordinary reality. They, they have a mystical experience, but they don't have mystical training. They've got to go back to their job as an accountant, say, or, uh, you know, their, their family. And they're still out of their heads a bit. They're still in an altered state. So this book is um, 14 uh, real life stories of people's personal accounts of their spiritual emergencies. Uh, what caused them? What were they like? And what helped? So the idea is to try and create more resources for people going through that kind of experience, uh, and I'm doing a talk about it tomorrow at Alternatives online, uh, and I'd love to do one maybe here in, in the future. Talk about it. Um, it's called Breaking Open. The book is called Breaking Open: Finding a Way Through Spiritual Immersion. Awesome. Well,
0: I think it's it's a super important uh, super important idea to get out there. So everyone should definitely check out the book.